Father, we thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that this morning we have the opportunity to preach your word. But God, most importantly, I pray for people walking in here, God, that are not saved, that do not know you. Or God, for people that are struggling in their relationship with you, God, that you would meet them exactly where they're at. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. When I say the word family, um, for me personally, um, I have a lot of good memories. Um, I grew up in a, in a, a good family. I grew up in parents that loved me. I grew up in parents that believed in whipping my butt. Anybody grow up with parents like that? They believed in bend over, son, touch your ankles. Um, I believe in that. And um, when I think of the word family, my mind is flooded with many stories of um, just adventure, many stories of uh, movie nights, many memories of just my dad lovingly teaching us how to know God and us being able to um, uh, ask questions about Jesus and all those kind of things. I had a great family. Now, I'm also well aware that whenever I mention the word family, some of you do not have the same thoughts memories or flashbacks like I do. When I mention the word family, some of you think of divorce, some of you think of dysfunction, some of you think of pain, some of you think of abuse, some of you think of that word family and you're like, get me out of it, right? And so I'm well aware that there's two spectrums. Some of you grew up in good families, and let's just be honest, some of you didn't. Some of you grew up in families that lovingly taught you and pushed you to know Jesus, and some of you didn't. Some of you grew up in a family where the father was stable in home and he loved and he provided. And some of you grew up in families where the father was completely absent. And here's what I want to do this morning. I want to speak to both of those scenarios. And I want you to know this. No matter where you are on the spectrum, no matter what kind of family you've come from, good or bad, that God has something for you this morning. And I want to start in the very beginning in Genesis and I think um, Genesis chapter 2, 3 through 4 has a lot to say about family. So we're going to pick it up in um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. If you do not, it will be on the screen for you. Now let me give you just a little background about what's going on. Okay, so for five days... God has been creating things. He creates things like light. He creates things like the oceans and the mountains and the stars and the universe and all these things. And on the sixth day, he creates man. And this is where we pick it up. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Wouldn't that be cool just to witness that? Like God actually doing that? Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. Let's skip down to um, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, is it not good that man should be alone? Now let me stop there. Okay, so for five days, God is creating all these things, and after he's done creating something on that day, he says a phrase. He says, this is good. This is good. When he turned on the lights, 
when there was darkness and there became light, he said, this is good. When he created waters and oceans and mountains, he would look at it and say, this is good. When he created animals and all these things, he said, this is good. On the sixth day, he said something different. Every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them under the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man, the man <clears throat> gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God placed a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in place of flesh. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Teenagers, listen to this one. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. So, here's what we're reading. Here's what's going on. We see... Five days, God's created everything, and he says a phrase, this is good. Six days, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, here's what I want you to pick up on this, because many people use this specifically for marriage, and it, it can apply to that, but it also applies, what if God's called you to be single the rest of your life? Um, and God has called some people to do that. Um, I couldn't do it. It just it didn't happen. It, it just wouldn't work for me. But some of you, God has called to be single. Now... Here's what we understand. What God is saying is not good for man to be alone. Man needs relationship. Man needs a companion. Man needs friends. It's not good for man to be alone because God's creating all these animals and he's creating all these things and Adam's walking throughout the world and he doesn't have anything in this moment before God creates woman that he can connect with. So here's what we see at the very foundation of the world, that the, one of the earliest aches in humanity was loneliness. One of the earliest aches in humanity was loneliness. And God says, hold on, this is, this is not good. Man needs a companion. Man and woman need friends. We need relationships. Any of you kind of like, you're, you're, you're one of those people that if you're alone longer than a few hours, you're like, I need somebody to talk to. Anybody like that? Okay, a few of you in here. And then in Genesis 2 through 15, we see that God creates marriage. So it's between one man and one woman. And then he creates family. So let me summarize to you what's going to go on in verse, in chapter 3. In chapter 3, so God's creating all these things. Seventh day, he rests. Chapter 3, everybody knows the story. If you grew up in church, you know the story. Chapter 3, this is what happens. The serpent comes in, deceives Eve, says, why don't you eat of that fruit? And Eve kind of says, no, I don't want to eat. I shouldn't. But she ends up, the serpent convinces her otherwise. And this is what happens, picking up in chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, <laughs> Have you ever done this in your marriage? The man said, The woman you gave me told me to eat it. 
Ever do that? Like in marriage, like instead of taking the fault for yourself, you're like, dude, she made me do it. She made me do it. And then this is what happened. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And then the woman replied, I'm not taking ownership for myself. Well, the serpent, he, he made me do it, right? So we see in the very beginning of time that the enemy is after marriage. Because what happens? They sin, they fall into something that they knew they weren't supposed to do. And do they own it? No, they blame. They blame. So this isn't in the Bible, but if, if I'm just thinking about it, when, when Adam says, she made me do it, do you think Eve was kind of like, what, are you serious? And then when she, and she's like, well, the snake made me do it, do you think maybe an argument might have broken out right there for blame shifting? Do you think that might have happened? From the very beginning, from the first sin, the enemy is after family. He's after relationships. If the enemy wants to take you down, he will most certainly go after your marriage, your kids, and your close friends. It's just the truth. If the enemy wants to take you out of the game, he's going to put some divides in your relationships. The family that ate together and does life together and spends all of their closest moments together and are deeply connected and woven together, when, God, when the enemy puts a, um, a wedge in between that and it begins to separate, what begins to happen in your spiritual life, your relational life, everything begins to just not kind of seem to work, right? You get up in the morning and you see your attitude's kind of affected because maybe your marriage is struggling or one of your kids aren't doing too well and you wake up in the morning and that burden is constantly weighing upon you. If the enemy wants to take you down, he's going to come for your marriage and he's going to come for your family and he's going to come for your friendships. A thousand years later, the enemy has no new tricks. He's still after destroying family, right? I mean, look at our culture today. As a culture, we are trying to redefine marriage. We're trying to redefine family and what that looks like. The enemy has just got a little craftier, but he's not using any new schemes or any new tricks. He knows if he wants to take you down, he needs to go after your family. He needs to go after your marriage. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 4. Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. If you need an explanation on that, come to me after service. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a, a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions and the Lord he had regarded for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
So here's what we see. Whether you come from a good family, whether you come from a bad family, there's always dysfunction. Whether you come from a good family, whether you come from a bad family, there is always dysfunction because there is sin. Right? I mean, in the very first four chapters of the Bible, like, it's just getting started. God has created the universe and he places human beings on the earth and we destroy it. There's dysfunction. The marriage, the Adam and Eve, they're blame shifting, they're arguing. In chapter 4, Cain is literally killing his brother because he's jealous. But we also see this longing and craving for relationships. We see this desire to, to connect with one another. In Genesis, we see the great need of relationships and we also see the whole of dysfunction. And we need a savior to fix it. We see blame shifting, we see envy, we see murder, we see all these things going on. So through scripture, we see our need for true relationships, but how do we have them in the middle of so much dysfunction? How can we come to a church and be so much more than people just attending, being so much more than people just coming and sitting in a seat? How can we learn to be a family? I want to show you a family that had much, much dysfunction, but changed the world. I want to show you a family that suffered many trials, but changed the world. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And can I just tell you something this morning, maybe you didn't come from a good family, maybe you came from a dysfunctional family, but I want you to know that there's hope for you. There's hope for us to find family. And here we see it in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed, listen to this, were together and had all things in common. Isn't that good when you're on a team and you're all working for the same goal? Isn't the worst thing in the world when you're on a team and you all can't make a decision? Isn't there a lot of dysfunction, a lot of arguing, a lot of bickering? Verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as if any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's what you see in the New Testament church. This is what you see. You see people that came, they met together, they ate together. Food just kind of breaks down barriers, right? When you, when you sit down across the table from somebody and you eat a meal, you kind of have to talk. So you see people come together, they eat together, they pray together, and they serve their city together. And because of this, it says they had all things in common. They were unified. They were unified. The early church was a family that ate together. They shared heartache together, they served their community together, they loved together, and they suffered loss together. Many of them did not know it, but in Acts 2, many of them are forming these brotherhoods, these bonds, these friendships, and, and not to know it, but a few years later that many of them would be murdered and killed, and they suffered loss and heartache. The early church was not a perfect family, 
I don't know if you know this all throughout Acts, but in the church that gets started, you see, um, you see pastors getting drunk. Um, you, you see um, people in the church murdering others. You see bickering and fighting. Paul literally stands up at one point in Acts, and like I would be doing now, he's standing on a stage, and, and he looks at a couple that are married, and he said, hey, you two, can you please just get along? you imagine if I stood up here this morning and did that and pointed you out and said, hey, you guys, you guys need to work it out? So it's, it was not a perfect family. It had flaws. It had dysfunction. But then the Bible still says they had all things in common. They were unified. They were together. They were all for one mission, all for one purpose, all for one cause. Jesus is calling his people into the family of God. This is the family that we as a church strive to be. Can we be a church that is unified, that prays together, that eats together, that does life together, that serves our community together? Because if we can do that, we're going to see some incredible things happen in this city. We're going to see God do some amazing things here in this city. And not in just in this city, but in your life and in your own family. Maybe your family was not a good one, but you must know that there's hope within a spiritual family. Because church is more than loud worship music, good sermons, perfect attendance, and confession of sins. It's so much more than that. The church is what happens outside of these walls. Outside of these walls. Like, I would encourage you, if you haven't met somebody in here yet, even if it's the first time, pray and ask God to give you boldness and walk up to somebody and, hey man, let's go to lunch. Let's go to lunch today. Come over to my house. Hey, let's go fishing. Let's, let's do those things. A healthy church is a family church. Greater than our natural family, God has created something called spiritual family. So you're going to hear us use that term a lot here. Um, what is spiritual family? Spiritual family is a bond between believers that compels men and women to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel and others. Have you ever been so humbled by other people when they just go out of their way to serve you and love you? Doesn't it just do something in your heart to want to just connect with them and do the same back to them? This is what spiritual family looks like. Let me give you a few examples. When death knocks on your door, there's family to carry your weak legs. Because let me tell you something. We live in a day and age where we think that many people think, I, I have a relationship with Jesus, I don't need a church. And that, that's such a horrible example. You need a family. Because let me tell you something, the TV preacher is not coming to your funeral. The TV preacher is not going to counsel you when your son is going wayward and you don't know what to do. The TV preacher is not going to counsel you when your marriage is falling apart and you're like, God, I'm about to pull my hair out. We need a family. We need a family. When the prodigal son or daughter returns, there's a family to celebrate with you. You ever had a victory in your life? Like maybe you got a promotion at your job or maybe one of your kids just did something incredible or whatever and you look behind and there's nobody to celebrate with? You ever have that moment? Like gosh, just 
an amazing time in your life, and then you don't have any true community or friendship or family to enjoy that moment with. When your marriage is days away from ending, there's a family to lovingly point you to the Savior. When life is painful and too much to bear, there's a family that points you to hope. Local church is the hope of the world. You plugging into it is so much more important than anything. Family is so important. Here's what I find in, um, in I guess, southern Louisiana. Is a lot of us, the, the, the natural family side of things, like barbecuing together, crawfish boils, all that kind of stuff, we do that well, right? We do that pretty well with our own family. But for many of us, church is kind of like um, a perfect attendance thing. It's kind of something we check off. And yeah, I did that on Sunday, went there. We don't have any deep relationships with anybody in this room. And when hard times come, when things, when the floodgates open up and life is just difficult, do we have family to point us to Jesus? Let me read you something in Ecclesiastes 4, uh, starting at 9. It says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, well, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how do one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand a three-fourth cold is not quickly broken. Two are better than one. And here's, and I'm talking about myself included in this. Your personality is not an excuse. Some of us are, some of us are shy, some of us are kind of pushed back, some of us are reserved. And that's okay, that's the way that God made you, that's the way that God wired you. But we still have to have meaningful relationships. It's still so important for us to be involved in a church and connected to spiritual family because all of us, like I've said many times before, are going to have that day. Can I lovingly tell you this this morning? Maybe your family abandoned you or left you. Maybe you've never experienced spiritual family this morning. Can I lovingly tell you, welcome home? Listen, one of the greatest things that you can do is to make a decision and say, God, if this is where you've called me, if this is where you've planted me, then I'm going to do absolutely everything that I can to get involved here, to get plugged in, and not only that, just to meet people and build relationships. I'm going to do everything I can. So what must we know and understand to be part of a spiritual family and an eternal family? The first point that I'm going to make must happen. It's just got to happen. The second point I'm going to make is a benefit of the first. And the last three points that I'm going to make are kind of benefits of being a part of a spiritual family. So, what, what must we know and understand to be part of a spiritual family? Number one, we have to know Jesus. Number one, we have to have salvation. We have to know Jesus. And first and foremost, we must be assured that we belong to Christ. Now, 
I am well aware that many of us in here, myself included, at times in my life, you have doubted whether, how do I know if I'm saved, Pastor Zach? How do I know? Like, some of us just kind of, like, we come to church, we're doing all the things that we can, but we're just totally unsure if we would die tomorrow that we would spend eternity with Jesus. Let me read something to you in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 through 13. Whoever believes... Let's start there, okay? The gospel and salvation is actually really simple. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. So let me stop there. If you have received salvation, you have a story to tell. That you were once living for yourself, heading this way, and now you're making conscious decisions to go this way. You're not doing and taking part of the things that were once over here. And even when you fall, even when you fail, you go, God, that was wrong. Please forgive me. And then you confess with your mouth to other Christians, other believers, what you did, and you move forward. And you don't keep beating yourself up about it. So whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That you may know, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. When you believe in Jesus, you are given a story. When you believe in Jesus and salvation takes place, there is a testimony. There's an understanding that you were once dead in sin, and now you are free from that. The key, verse, the key word in 13 is the word know. God wants you to know that once you believe, your eternity is secure. And I want to clear up this, the muddy waters a little bit here. Salvation is not a prayer. Salvation is not moral goodness. Salvation is not a regular churchgoer. Salvation is God intervening in your rebellion and setting your affections on him. That's what salvation is. I read a really good illustration, and I've shared it with many people this week, but I think it'll really help you. Um, there's a man by the name of J.I. Packer, and in the 1940s, um, he was well convinced that he was saved convinced he was saved because he knew everything that he needed to know about Jesus. He knew it was important to read the Bible. He knew it was important to tell people about Jesus. He knew it was important to flee from sin, but yet he still had a problem doing it himself. And one day he walks into a church and he said, this guy um, was preaching. He doesn't even remember what was going on, but he just remembered it was like the lights turned on. Kind of like the lights turned on. And he wrote this down. And he, he kind of described it this way. He said, imagine you've got a house. And on the front of the house is this huge window. And you walk up to that window. And you see this family inside sitting around a table playing Monopoly. And they're laughing. They're cutting up. They're having a good time. They're playing this game. And they're just enjoying themselves. And you, you're standing outside of the window, you're peering in the window, you're looking and you see, you know how to play Monopoly, you know how the game works, you see that they're enjoying it, 
And you're going, man, I, I want to be a part of that. He said, but before, I was the man standing out the window. He said, I knew how the game worked. I knew all the right things to say. I knew what I needed to do. I understood Jesus, but I didn't understand Jesus in my heart. So the question is, are you in the house playing the game? Are you outside looking through the window? And that's what we've got to constantly check ourselves on. Do you understand this? Do you understand, you understand the relationship with Jesus, but are you enjoying the benefits of genuinely having one? Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there relationship? I want you to know that Jesus saves us just as we are, but begins to transform us into what we will someday be. So here's the beauty of salvation. You don't have to do anything. It's not about how hard you work. It's not like, okay, God, I want you to save me, so I'm going to do all these things to make sure that I am good to get to that point. God says, no, wherever you're at right now, whatever you're dealing with in life right now, no matter how bad your situation is, I save you right now if you just believe in me. So number two, and I'll be quick with this one. After salvation, there's adoption. We talked about this a few weeks ago. After Jesus saves you, this is what happens. And I love this. Now you become a part of a family. You get adopted in to a family. Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of God into the hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Salvation equals adoption. Regardless of your dysfunction, you are now a part of a family. Jesus calls us, I love this, Jesus calls us sons and daughters. He's the father we need. He's strong, he's steadfast, he's patient, and he's compassionate. And he puts us into a perfect, loving family. And every good family has some dysfunction. But like my kids, they're young enough so they won't hear this. this. Like my kids, they've got dysfunction, Right? They have things that um, they do, even though I've told them not to do, seven million times. But it does not matter what they do or how much dysfunction or disruption they cause, I'm still going to love them. Why? Because they're my kids. So once there's salvation, you have to understand that there's this massive theme going on, that there's adoption. You're a part of a family regardless of what your family background looks like. He calls us sons and he calls us daughters. I want to give you um, four different benefits of being a part of a family. Number one, there's provision. God provides for his family. There's provision. 
Matthew 6, 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Are you not more valuable than they? When you come into a family, there's provision. I mean, if you're a father in here, why do you go to work? Why? To provide for your family, to take care of your family, to feed your family. There's provision. The thing that I love about the church is this, is when you come into spiritual family, that not only does God provide for you, but the church, if you would make your needs known, the church provides for you. I don't know if you know this, but um, we've had a church for Jennings for almost 15 years now. And we have made it an effort in that community, and we're going to do it here in Crowley as well. We've made an effort in that community to be the church that takes care of our people. And here's the one thing we get all the time, all the time. Our phones at the office ring off of the hook for people looking for help. Because it's the common thing. They said, I've called every church in town and every organization in town, but I knew that I could call you guys. I knew. When you're a part of a church and you have great need, there's provision. When you're a part of a family, there's provision. Number four, you may not like to hear this one, but when you're in a family, there's discipline. There's discipline. Hebrews 12 um, verse 5 says, and, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He's saying, have you forgotten the, that I've called you a son? You're my son. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when we approve by him. For the Lord, listen to this, disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Though it may be painful, every good father disciplines their child. And maybe you're in a season right now where you're like, man, God, why are you allowing this to happen? What's going on here? I don't understand. Every good father disciplines their children. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, um, we were at my parents' house. My parents have this really... Uh, it's kind of like a, a bypass road where cars kind of cut through. And I have small kids. And uh, my son, Eli, he, now he's, he's probably one of my most cautious and he's aware of things, but he was younger at the time. And uh, he takes off running in the front yard and there's cars just zooming by. Now, as a dad, what do you think I do? I see him going towards this tree and I have two options right there. And look at him and say, son, please don't go on the street. Or what do you think my reaction is? Yelling, screaming, waving my hand, son, don't go in the street, there's a car. Right? And if somebody maybe would have seen me passing by, it may have looked like I was mad and I was upset. And I take him because he st stepped into the street and at the time he's probably four years old and I bring him inside and I discipline him, I spank him. I said, you cannot go in the street. There's cars. Squash you. Do not go in the street. Was that harsh or was that love? That's love, right? Because I love my son. 
I'm going to yell and I'm going to scream and I'm going to do whatever I can to run out and make sure he does not get hit by a car. It's the same way in our relationship with Jesus. Sometimes God throws things out there and he says, hey, wake up. I'm trying to love you. Sometimes there's pain and sometimes there's things that we don't understand and God's going to do anything because he loves us so much to grab hold of our attention. Yet again, if any parent in here had a son or a daughter running into the street, into traffic, you would most definitely yell, scream, and run out and grab that child. Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? For the moment, it, it seems pleasant, but later it yields other peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In the moment, it seems harsh. In the moment of me walking into the room and one of my sons knowing they're about to get a whooping, I, my, Eli told me the other day, he goes, Dad, can mom spank me? <laughs> you spank too hard. Can mom spank me? I was like, well, thanks for letting me know. Mom's not spanking you anymore. <laughs> In that moment, we don't understand it. In that moment, it hurts. In that moment, it's painful. But if we can become trained by it, it produces faithfulness. It produces righteousness. It produces fruit. Another benefit of being a part of a family is community. Community. The word community is a compound word. Com meaning with. And unity meaning exactly what it says. So this word means with unity, community, with unity. When you live in community, you live in something that just works together. There's nothing worse than a divided team. But there's nothing better than a unified team. You ever show up to your job and you're trying to get a task done and it seems like everybody has their opinion about how it should be done? And you're like, we're never going to get anything done because everybody wants to do it their own way. But ever, ever showed up to a thing and somebody's like, all right, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and everybody's like, all right, let's go, let's do it. Let's do it. It just works. You can get stuff done. Within community, you cannot hide. Family knows who you really are. Family sees behind the curtain. My dad says this all the time. He says, family sees your nakedness. So when you walk into the doors and we say, hey, how are you? They're like, oh, great, good, good, I'm fine. And we really know that's not the case, Right? If we would allow ourselves, why so many people come into churches, they sit, they take part, and then they jet out. Because they know if they really get plugged in, if they really get involved, then people are going to really know them. But that's what I love about community. 
is you can be truly known in, in that God can be greatly glorified. The last point, wrapping this up. Within family, there's action. There's action. We see in Acts 2, which we read earlier, verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is what family does. Family pushes you to do something that you may have not been comfortable with doing before. Some of you might have been uncomfortable to come in here for the first time on a Sunday. Some of you might have been uncomfortable to get involved. Some of you might have been uncomfortable to come to first step or do any of those things. But maybe you came with family and said, hey, let, I'll, do the, I'll do this with you. Let's go together. Let's do this together. Not only did they provide for the needs of their brothers and sisters, but they put into action what they believed. They put into action what they believed, and through that, it unified them. True family pushes you to act even when you seem to hesitate. True family encourages you to pursue Christ even when your day sucked. So closing all this up, for the next three weeks, like I said, we're going to be talking about what does it look like to live life together? What does it look like to be more than just a church that comes and worships and celebrates and sings a few songs and we all go about our lives? What does it look like if we can come in here, celebrate the good God that he is, and walk out of here and all of our lives be interwoven with one another, relationships being established? What would that look like? Relationships are some of the most important things on the face of the earth. And I think God, well, I know God, from the very beginning is communicating to us, it is not good for us to be alone. It is not good for us to come in here and just sit and walk out and not get involved. It's not good for us to be alone. God's called us to be a family. God's called us to live life together, to carry one another's burdens. And when that hard day comes, that we can be there for each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, I thank you. God, that you sent your one and only son. God, that we can have that free gift of salvation. And God, that through that, that you graft us into a family. God, I pray for those that, God, maybe they, they've heard this and they hear that word family. God, and they're just flooded with so many bad memories. Maybe of their natural family or maybe somewhere that they were a part of previously. Of just things that they were a part of. And they say, I want to get close. I want to get involved. But I was just so hurt before. I don't know if I can do it again. God, I pray that this morning that you would meet them where they're at. God, that you would help us 
to understand that you're calling us home. In your name, amen.